brethren, I'm going to speak on something that relates to the Passover that's coming. It's not a normal Passover sermon. In fact, I hope someone else will give a regular explanation of the meaning of the Passover in the next few weeks. I think that would be a very, a very good idea. But I think we all need to realize that this world is so mixed up about so many things and that as most people, tens and hundreds of millions grow up in the Protestant and Orthodox and Catholic churches, they hear about Jesus Christ in a totally wrong way. And many of us have had a totally different idea stamped in our minds. And some of you young people who even grew up in the church have probably had it rub off on you because of all the stuff that's out there about Christ. The idea is that somehow Christ appeared 200, you know, 2,000 years ago and he was born in a manger and then some of them believe he was born of a virgin. Others don't believe that, but they just think he was born in a manger and he was a nice young Jewish boy. Some don't even mention that part. They don't have him look like a Jew. All the pictures have him look like something else. But they have been born in a manger, and Sanhai grew up, and he was such a wonderful young man and a good teacher who talks about love. And they get all mixed up, as you know, what he talks about. They have the craziest ideas you can imagine. They come up with every conceivable thing because they take bits and pieces of the Scripture out of context. But I want to talk to you today about the real Jesus Christ. Who was the real Jesus Christ? And I hope we can really get this in our mind and stamp it in there. Who was the real Jesus Christ? How did he come? What was it all about? So we need to go back in time, if I've done before, and think about the time when there was this vast universe and there were two great beings out there in space somewhere. We later learn of them as the Father and the Son that they were two great magnificent spirit beings and one of them had to submit to the other which he did because he had the utter humility and God has humility to take, do, take second place and he was willing to do that for all eternity. But these two great beings were there and they existed from eternity. It says back in John, and you need to start, as Mr. Armstrong used to, not with Genesis 1, 1, but with John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and verse 1. So let's turn there, John chapter 1 and verse 1. <clears throat> in the beginning, then say when it was, it was not 6,000 years ago, it may have been 6 million or 6 billion or 60 billion and these great scientists, so-called, cross around billions of years like ping-pong balls. I used to save a, a whole file on that. We were going back about 60 years. I really did. And every few years it got changed. First it was 1.8 million years, and then later it was two and a half, and later it kept getting bigger and bigger. They don't know. They really do not know. They're guessing. But if you read enough clippings from the different scientists, you'll figure that out. Each one of them has its own system they don't know. But somewhere way back there, we don't have to know. We don't ever teach that Christ was born 6,000 years ago and it was way back before that time. But in the beginning, whenever that was, perhaps millions and probably billions of years ago as we humans count time, in the beginning was the word. The Greek word means logos or spokesman. The revelatory principle, Christ was the spokesman. 
and the spokesman was with God, obviously God the Father, and the Word was God. He was God from the beginning. He was in the beginning with God, with God the Father, as we call Him today. All things were made by whom? Were all things made by God the Father? No! God made all things through Jesus Christ. Christ was the one that did it acting for the Father. All things were made through him, this word, this logos. And without him nothing was made, nothing. The sun, the moon, the stars, the vast galaxies out there, perhaps millions of galaxies and billions of stars. Christ is the one that made all those things, the one that died for your sins and my sins. He's the one that made everything that is. He's the one that made the beautiful sunsets and the beautiful sunrises. He's the one that made the beautiful little children and the little love and laughter that they have. And everything good and right is made by Christ. God made all things by Christ. Every good gift, all things were made through him. In him was life and the life was the light of men. He was the light to show us how we ought to live. He was the example, and we ought to follow that example. But again, most script, most of the theologians know what his example were, was. They know that. They know he was a typical Jew. They know he kept the Sabbath. They're not arguing about that. They know he kept the holy days. But somehow they can twist Scripture around and say, well, we don't have to really follow the light. We follow these other ideas. He was the light. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. So he was the one that came into the world. In verse 10, he was in the world. He later came into the world about 2,000 years ago as a human being. And the world was made through him. Remember, brethren, when you see the stories about Christ walking around the Sea of Galilee, he could look at that great big lake and say, I made that lake. And I know if you and I got on, out on that lake and started to walk on the water like Peter did, we'd probably get scared. Why didn't get Christ get scared? He had perfect faith. His pre-incarnate knowledge came back, and he knew he made that lake. He made the heavens and the earth. He made the law of gravity. He made all those things. You have to realize everything that is, Christ made it. Christ is the one that made us male and female. And of course, back during the Victorian age, as we call it, men and women were embarrassed about sex. Now they take sex for granted and they misuse it and abuse it in a horrible way. And now they're trying to get men to go into women's restrooms and they try to pervert everything God did intend to keep us separate in the right way and all those things. But they go to one extreme or the other. Christ was never embarrassed about sex. He made sex. He designed the male body. He designed the female body. Christ did that. God did that through Christ. He wanted us to love each other. He wanted us to become one flesh. He wanted us to have children. He and the Father wanted us to reproduce and have families and have little children to become members of the very family of God. That was his purpose. He was not embarrassed about any of that. He just intended it to be used in the right way. So he came into his own, and as many as received him, to them he became the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. 
And most of you know, as we've explained, and the commentaries explain, the Greek word name, and certainly in Hebrew even more meaningful, the word name means everything about a person. His character, his property, everything he stands for, his name, his reputation. So he was sweet, he, his name, then uh, he, they were given the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, but of the will of, or the will of man or flesh, but of God. And the word Christ, the spokesman, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And in that time he was begotten, of course. He had not yet born of God, uh, in the way that we're to be spiritually, and so on. So he was the only begotten of the Father. Now, he had was from the beginning. He's the one that made the heavens and the earth. Turn back to Genesis, let's review that. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God, and as you've heard us explain, the Hebrew word here is a uniplural noun. It means more than one, like family. Family, in the beginning, God, more than one, created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was, or the Hebrew word is often translated, became, became chaotic and confused without form and void in that great pre-Adamic destruction caused by Satan's rebellion. So the earth became chaotic and confused and darkness was over the face of the deep. God didn't make it that way, it became that way. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, and this was Christ speaking. He was the one who was the Word. We have to realize that God was always speaking through this second person who became Christ, who became our Savior. God said, Christ said, let there be light. And there was light. And he began to reform the heavens and the earth and put animals on it and, and all the plants and beautiful flowers and each creature reproduced according to his kind. And then in verse 26, then God said, Elohim more than one said, let us, not let me, the Hebrew means more than one. So God and Christ were both there, two personalities. Let us, make man in our image according to our likeness. And you know earlier he said each thing reproduced according to his kind. So if you read this carefully it shows us indicating clearly that God decided to reproduce according to the God kind. He was going to reproduce according to the God kind. Let us make man in our image and let them have dominion means government. So man was to be in charge over all the animals and creatures on the earth. And God created man in his own image, in the image of God, male and female. Both of us are created in the image of God. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. His first command was not to avoid sex and be nicey-nice. His first command to Adam and Eve because they were grown, they were the only male and female beings on the earth. He said, get together have children, love each other and have lots of children. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. So then man was created in God's image from the very beginning by Christ, by the one who was the word, the spokesman, 
and by the one who later emptied himself, as we'll see, and became the one we think of as Jesus the Christ. Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Some of these are familiar, but I want us to really stamp this in our mind. Who was the Jesus Christ that died for you? Who was the true Christ? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Moreover, Paul wrote, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware of all our fathers were made under the cloud and all passed through the sea, you know, as they came out of Egypt and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank, drink for they drank of that rock, and that rock was Christ. So Christ was the one teaching them. The one who later became Jesus of Nazareth, born of a virgin, born as a human being, that personality was Christ who dealt with them. He was the rock of Israel. He was the God of Israel. He's the one who spoke to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, not God the Father, never. I'm going to show that, understand that. It was only the one who became Christ who spoke to them. That rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered through the wilderness, and these things became examples. God was showing us we should fear to do evil. Sin brings death. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Christ had to pay that penalty on our behalf and died for us. So God was not pleased with them, and there, these troubles they had were examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they did, and that we do not become idolaters as some of them were. As it says, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They had a drunken sexual orgy, obviously, when you read this story. they just come out of Egypt. They were used to that. That's what they got into right away as they began to turn away from God. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Wow. You talk a lot of people in this orgy. 23,000 got so heavy, God killed them on the spot to show them his attitude about the misuse of sex. So he says, uh, then they were, many were destroyed by the destroyer and murmured and got in trouble. Now all these things happened to them, verse 11, as examples. So they were examples for us and they were written in our, for our admonition uh, to the ends of the earth. So God tells us that we're not to follow that example. And it says in verse 9, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted. Who were they tempting? Not God the Father. He was not there in person. He was not the God of Israel. Christ was the one there. He was the one in all these accounts, not God the Father. It's good to stamp that out of your mind that God the Father is there. God, no, God the Father was not there. He did all this through Jesus Christ. Now let's go on to another example of these very things. Turn with me, if you would, to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 8. The Gospel of John, now, chapter 8. And here, Jesus Christ is speaking. John 8, verse 56. 
he was telling the Jews, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Jesus was saying, Abraham saw my day. Well, of course, he was the God of Abraham. But most people don't understand that. The Jews didn't understand that. He rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said, you're not even 50 years old. How can you say you saw Abraham? And Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, before Abraham existed, I am. And it's kind of a double meaning. He existed, but he's using the same exact expression corresponding to Exodus uh, 3.14, where Jesus, or God, was revealed his name as the I am. The I am. Exodus 3.14, the one with life inherent within himself. Before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus was saying, I am the God of the Old Testament. Wow! The Jews understood what he meant and they were going to kill him. They weren't in doubt about that. Most Protestants don't understand that. They don't get it. Christ was the I am. Christ was the God of the Old Testament, but the Jews did understand that and they took up stones to throw at him. So he was supernaturally able to get through them and get out of there somehow. God blinded them, confused them, and he got out. But he identified himself as the God of Israel, the I Am. Now turn back to 1 John, if you would, the first epistle of John, just back before Revelation, 1 John chapter 4. Many scriptures in the New Testament tell this, but this is one of the clearest ones. 1 John 4, verse 12. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. Turn there. No one has seen God at any time. What? Moses saw God, talked with it face to face. Abraham saw God, talked it face to face on the way to destroy Sodom. All these accounts, how can this be? No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. No man has seen God at any time. So obviously John is talking about God the Father. They did see the Logos. They did see the spokesman. They did see the God of Israel who became Jesus Christ. They did not see God the Father. So again, we need to understand that distinction. Otherwise, the Bible appears to contradict itself. Turn back now. Remember, no man has seen God at any time. Jesus Christ said that directly. Now turn back to Exodus 24, if you would. Exodus in your Old Testament. Way back in Exodus chapter 24. Here's a few chapters right after God gave the Ten Commandments. And again, actually, Christ gave the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> he was the one who said, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Israel. And so in Exodus 24... It shows in verse 9 here, Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And later it indicates that Moses' servant Joshua was there. Probably at least 74 men went up. 74 were up there. They all went up and they saw. Bible contradiction? No. It's not talking about God the Father. Who did they see? They saw the God of Israel. <clears throat> it wasn't God the Father. No. It was the one who became Jesus Christ that they saw. 
they saw the God of Israel. Christ was the God of Israel. And brethren, when you hear about King David praising and worshiping the Lord God of the armies of Israel, when you hear about Joshua falling down, this great powerful being comes to him and he said, Joshua said, who are you? He said, I'm the captain of the armies of Israel. And and Joshua falls on his face. That great being was not God the Father. That was Christ. And when God was praised by Jesus, by David all the way through the Psalms, again, David undoubtedly understood that there was God the Father. Other scriptures indicate that. But he was dealt with directly by Christ. He was praising the God of Israel over and over again. Abraham is the one talking to the God of Israel, not God the Father. So here he was, and these men saw the God of Israel, and they and that there was under his feet as a paved work of sapphire stone. It was like the very heavens in its in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he does not lay his hand. He didn't touch them, but they saw God. And they ate and drank. So that was an awesome case. They saw God. But the God they saw was the God of Israel, not God the Father as we think of him today. Now let's turn to Matthew 22, if you would. Back in your New Testament again to Matthew chapter 22, brethren. And here Jesus is talking, of course, in Matthew 22 and beginning in 41, verse 41 here. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about Christ? You see, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Whose son is he? And these Jewish prophets and teachers, they said, He's the son of David. That was always their teaching, that the coming Anointed One is the son of David. Of course, David knew, Christ knew who he was, and he put them on the spot. They didn't understand that either. And he said, how then does David call him in the Spirit through God's Spirit, Lord? How can God, David, call his son Lord? Because Christ was the God of David, but humanly speaking, he was born later of the Virgin Mary. And through that lineage, humanly, he was also the son of David. They didn't get it. How can he call him Lord, saying, The Lord, and here he's quoting directly from Psalm 110, verse 1. Look it up back there. I'm reading the New Testament account because it shows what it means here even more directly. The Lord, the great God, the true God the Father, said to my Lord, Did David have a human Lord? No. When he was king of Israel, he didn't bow down to any other human being. The Lord, God the Father as we call him, said to my Lord, the Lord God of the armies of Israel, who was the immediate Lord of David, he said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how he is then his son? And no one was able to ask him a word about that, so they shut up, they quit asking him questions. He put them on the spot, and they showed them they didn't even understand their own writings. Of course, they were blind. Jesus constantly talked about the Pharisees and religious leaders. We want to respect them, but those Jewish leaders are not to be followed. We can learn certain technical knowledge that they had, 
but remember spiritually they were wrong, wrong, wrong in the way they changed the day of the Passover and the way they kept the Passover and all kinds of things. They did keep it correctly. The law, the law of Moses they did not keep. They had perverted it. They changed all these things over and over and said, do not follow their teachings. They got things all mixed up. They were blinded and they were hard-headed and very, very carnal, obviously. So the Lord said to my Lord. So David's Lord was the one who became Christ. And so when you understand that, why well, then you can understand those scriptures back there. Now back in Genesis 18, to draw this point home that I've already commented about, but let's turn to Genesis 18 in this very famous passage about how Christ was on the way to, actually God it says, but of course it was Christ on the way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Excuse me. It says here, as they were going along, why, uh, and then the man rose up from there and looked towards Sodom. That was these two angels along with the one who became Christ. And Abraham went with them. And verse 17, the eternal said, the eternal, the one who became Jesus Christ, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do? He was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah since Abraham's going to become a mighty nation and so on and so forth. And of course, Abraham sensed what was going to happen. So remember how he reasoned with God. In a sense, he argued with God, but he didn't argue. He just tried to plead with the men and, and, and sort of sort of bargain him down, so to speak. Well, if there are just 50 righteous men would destroy it, no. If there are just 40 righteous men, no. If there are just 30, 20, finally got him down to 10. He said, if there are even just 10 righteous men, I won't destroy it. But Christ undoubtedly understood this, said he was so filled with absolute vile behavior, he was going to have to destroy it. And so Abraham tried to reason with him. God tells us back in Luke chapter 18 to keep coming. Remember the importunate widow kept coming and kept coming to the unrighteous judge. And brethren, how much more should we come to God? Say, Father, we don't understand. Please hear our prayer. Show us where we're wrong. It's not wrong. God does not mind us doing that. These examples are there to help us know that we can come to God, keep coming to God. And so Abraham reasoned with God and he said, Will you verse 23, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? God didn't get his feelings hurt. Here is Abraham, the father of the faithful. He was very sincere. Suppose there were just 50. So he raised them on down, finally, you know, us to 10. And in verse 25, he said, in the last phrase, verse 25, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham knew who he was talking to. You get it? Abraham was talking to the judge of all the earth. Who is the judge of all the earth? God the Father ultimately, but immediately Christ is the judge of all the earth. And he was talking to him in that particular case. So that's an important distinction there. Then... Uh, you go back to Exodus here, if I can 
read my own writing here turn back to Exodus 18 Exodus 18 if you would brethren and here is a case where Moses' father-in-law, the whole account indicates, was guided by God to come and talk to Moses and to say, you're overworking yourself. You're trying not only to teach the nation God's ways, but you're trying to judge every single case yourself. So here, as even some of the great, greatest minds on earth that deal with management and leadership say, here was the beginning of management. The principle of delegation. You delegate certain things to others. And Jethro pointed that out to Moses. And he said, you'd better delegate the other men to do some of these things. He said in verse 20, you shall teach them the statutes. And this is another thing you have to understand, brethren. Did God the Father just give the Ten Commandments? Or as God the Father gave the statutes and judgments and then Christ came along with greater love and he didn't do that. No! Christ is the one that gave the, the statutes and judgments. Christ is the one who said homosexuality is a vile thing. It's evil. Christ said that. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Bible is the mind of God. But also, brethren, as you know, the Bible is the mind of Christ. Because Christ is God and Christ is called the Word, the Logos. So when you see these things where God told him to take this man out and execute him, that was Christ. That this sweet Jesus sitting sidewise on his donkey with long hairs holding up the two. No, that's a false Christ. The Christ is the Bible is the Lord God of the armies of Israel. Yes, he has tremendous love. He died for us. But he also has great power. He does not mess with sin. He's the one who gave the statutes. He's the one who said, You shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It's an abomination. It's an abomination, God said. And all those other things he said came from Christ. Christ is the one who taught us how to live. Christ is the one who gave every one of those statutes that we read about in the Old Testament. They're Christian. They came from Christ. Do we have to keep them in the letter today? No, the New Testament shows we keep the spirit of them, but that doesn't do away with them. The principle must be kept. We keep the Passover, but we don't have the roast lamb and the bitter herbs. We have wine and unleavened bread and different examples like that. It shows in the New Testament we don't have the administration of death. That's a different matter. That administration of death was for the time being because it was the civil law of a carnal nation. But the principle is still there. Or do those, those sins still bring death? Yes, they still bring death. Homosexuality, any kind of perversion, bestiality brings death. Is the church to carry it out? No. God will carry it out, though if you're not repentant of those things, God himself will carry out that same penalty. But today it's administered by, by God and, and so on. So you have to understand that part. I can't cover all of that in one sermon, but I think you get the picture. Christ is the one who gave those things, certainly for the Father. But they're Christian. They came from Christ. Who is the Lord God of Israel who said, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt? 
keep these Ten Commandments, you'll have no other God before me. That was Christ. Christ gave the Ten Commandments. And this is something, try to blaze it in your mind and talk to people. If they're interested, don't argue with people, but help them understand who gave the Sabbath. God the Father. No, Christ gave the Sabbath. He's the one who gave the Sabbath. He's the one who came into this earth setting us the example. And he kept the Sabbath as his custom was. He always kept the Sabbath. Never broke a Sabbath. So the Sabbath came from Christ. It came from God the Father. But the immediate one who spoke those laws was Christ. That rock was Christ. Think about that over and over again. He is God. And he's the one who gave all those things. So he's the one who gave these statutes and judgments, and he's the one who gave the pattern of church government. He's the one who said, you're to appoint leaders, and they shall carry these things on. He never said vote. He said, appoint men of ability who have the fear of God. And he always had it that way. That was Christ speaking. The pattern of church government is not something devised by Mr. Armstrong or by men. That came directly from Jesus Christ back in Exodus chapter 18 and many other scriptures where later on we see how the righteous kings of Israel, Jehoshaphat, did the same thing. Later, King David did the same thing. They appointed their leaders. That was Christ's form of government. That is Christian. Christ is the living head of the church. Christ will not change those basic things. He said, I am the eternal, I change not. And you remember Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Those basic patterns, those basic laws do not change. So you have to understand those things came from him, and he's the one who set those things in motion. Now, when you finally die and you're brought up before God, is God the Father going to judge you? Is God the Father going to directly judge you? No. Most of you know it, but let's, again, blaze this in your mind so you understand. God, from the beginning, has always dealt with human beings. Try to listen to this phrase I'm giving you now. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of the Bible, God has always, God the Father, I mean, has always dealt with human beings. How? Through the Lagos, through the spokesman, through the Lord God of the armies of Israel, through the one who became Jesus Christ. He did not deal with them in person, and he's not going to deal with us in person, even in the judgment, as most of you know. So to understand that, turn back to John, to John, if you would, the Gospel of John, and, and, uh, and verse chapter 5, John 5 and verse 21. Jesus said, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son of Man gives life to whom he will. He said, I am the resurrection. I am the life. God the Father resurrects, but he does it through Christ. Then he went on to say, verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all, get this, all judgment to the Son, and verse 23 is very vital. Read verse 23 carefully. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. You are to honor the Son. God the Father 
and the one who became the law gods, the spokesman, the son, are just like that. They're totally one from eternity, totally one in character, in the way they think, the way they act, the way they would judge, because they've talked with each other millions and millions of hours, and they're totally together. God the Father may have jobs to do throughout eternity with spirit beings and planets we don't even know about, but in this earth, he's dealing with human beings through the Son. He has total confidence in the Son, total confidence, and we need to have that too. The one that you're going to celebrate his death in a few days at Passover, the one who died for you, he's the one who's going to judge you. He's the one who will carry out God's judgment. He's the one who judges because it says right here, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father because God has committed all judgment to Him, to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as, not some lesser way, you totally honor Christ, totally honor Christ just as the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. These are very powerful words when you understand it, but it's good to blaze them into your brain so you really understand those principles as you come to the Passover that great being who died for you that great being who laid down his life for you that great being who said let there be light and there was light the Lord God of the armies of Israel who delivered ancient Israel who delivered King David over and over again in various battles that rock of Israel that rock was Christ Turn back now, if you would, brethren, to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25. And notice what it says here. Again, something familiar, but we need again to really understand it in relation to the things I've been giving you here in this sermon. Matthew 25, and I want to begin reading in verse uh, 31. Matthew 25, verse 31. Notice what Christ is saying. He said, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, He's going to come in magnificent power surrounded by angels, trumpet blasts. Every mountain and every island will be shaken out of its place. They'll know the Creator is coming back to His creation. It'll be an awesome time. And all the angels with Him then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another. Who will do this? Christ will do that when the Son of Man comes, not God the Father. He's the one who separates the sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Because you have been zealous, you've been giving, you've been helping, you've been serving. And he gives those examples. In other scriptures, he gives other examples about how we're to help and serve and build the work. In this example, he does acts of kindness. And we're to help the poor. We're to help those who are naked and sick and in prison. And he shows that attitude is going to bring great reward in God's coming government to be set up on this earth. Then back in Revelation chapter 11, 
Turn to Revelation 11 here. And again, a very familiar scripture, I hope, to all of us. In Revelation chapter 11 and in verse 15, it shows this tremendous time when every mountain and every island will be shaken out of its place and the Creator returns to His creation. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded, Revelation 11, verse 15, that final trumpet blast, and there were voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this kingdoms, plural, the governments of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. Are they becoming the kingdoms of God the Father? No. He delegated that to Christ. They become the kingdoms of our Lord Christ. Christ is the one to administer it. And He, Christ, He's the one to rule on earth. He's the one God the Father has dealt with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through. He's the one through whom God dealt with Moses. He's the one who God dealt with David and all the other great servants of God. He's the one who's going to administer God's government on this earth for about 1,100 years. And then after that, the earth will be burned up and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. But all as long as we're human beings, everything indicates God the Father deals with us through the one who became Jesus Christ. So he will be the king and he shall reign forever and ever. And Christ will never be removed. There won't be rebellion. There won't be people murmuring and arguing. If they are, they will be put out into outer darkness and so on. Now, so Christ, of course, should be very real to us. Christ is the one who's going to be our boss for the next hundreds of years and perhaps throughout all eternity. They're not God the Father directly. Now let's turn to Hebrews chapter 14. So turn to Hebrews, if you would, chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And I'm going to begin reading here in Hebrews 4 and in verse 14. It says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest, Christ is our high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Don't give up and quit. We have the one up there pleading with God the Father, the very one who created us, who created the heavens and the earth, who said, let there be light, and there was light, who made us, who made us in the image of God, and who later died for us. He is our friend. He's our Savior. He's our elder brother, our merciful high priest. We do not have a high priest that cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. When Christ walked up and down the hills of Palestine as a young man, ages 20 to 33, he felt the poles of human nature. He had human nature just like we do. He saw the beautiful girls and probably had a certain urge. He had to guide that in the right direction. He knew they were beautiful, but he couldn't dwell on the sexual aspect of life because he was already married. Typically, he was married to ancient Israel, and humanly he knew he should not marry because he was going to die. He would be leaving a widow. And, of course, all the ramifications, if he left children, they would be worshipped, be a big mess. So he knew he could not ever do that. 
He had to bring every thought into captivity, in his case, not to Christ, but to God, which he did do. When those men grabbed him after his very first sermon, tried to throw him down off this hill, remember, while somehow passing through them supernaturally got out of there. Do you think Christ never kind of felt an urge? That young man who was the one who taught people, whatever you do, do with your might. That young man who was lifting heavy stones and timbers, he probably was rippling with muscles. He had human nature. He probably thought, I could crack a couple of these guys' heads together and throw them off this hill. Don't you think those thoughts may have started to occur to Christ? I do. I think they occurred to Christ. He had to fight them and fight them and fight them. And he set us the example so he know this is not right. He stopped the thoughts halfway on their way before they came to fruition because they came into a full-scale attitude of hate or lust or violence. He guided his thoughts and brought them into captivity to Christ, as we would say, or captivity to God's way. So we have a high priest who understands. He really does understand because he was tempted in every point of the law. He was tempted to sexual lust. He was tempted to kill. He was tempted to lie. He was tempted to steal. He was tempted at every point of the law, just like we are, yet without sin. He really understands that great being. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Go up and say, Father, Lord Jesus, you know you've been here. Please help me. He begged God, help me, help me, as you'll see. Cry it out to God. And we have to do that sometimes. If we want to be in God's kingdom so much, we can taste it almost. We don't want to just mutter it quietly. We want to go all out to God and cry out to God and meet with every fiber of our being. So come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find help and grace in time of need. He said here in uh, talking about his human nature and uh, human beings in chapter, uh, again in chapter 5, Hebrews 5, verse 7, talking again about Christ, who in the days of his flesh, when he'd offered up prayers and supplications, so prayers he offered up, but also he'd offered up supplications, which often means repeated heartfelt prayers, sometimes with fasting, begging God. How did he cry out to God? With vehement cries, not quiet cries, yelling to God, Help me! Help me! There's no one else if I don't make it. Father, I've got to make it. Please help me. With vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yes, he was already the son of God, Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, the tremendous raging human nature, and Satan tried to work on that human nature to stir him up, and he had to beg God, cry out to God for help. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who what? Who just say, I love Jesus, and clap in church and say, we love Jesus. Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. No. To all who obey him. Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Jesus said that in Luke 6, verse 46. Turn to that one. Make that a basic memor memorizing scripture. Luke 6, 46. 
Why call Jesus Lord, Lord, and don't do what he said? He wants you to obey him. He said, if you would enter into life, keep the commandments. Matthew 19, 17. And then he began to name some of the Ten Commandments. Obey him if he's your Lord. Lord means boss. Again, the world doesn't get it. They don't understand that. But we should understand it and we should respond. So he cried out to God with vehement cries and tears, begged God for help, put his whole being into it. And then, brethren, let's turn at this point to Matthew 27 at this point. Matthew 27, back near the end of your of your Gospels here, the end of the book of Matthew. <clears throat> Turn to Matthew 27, and it's talking about the time Christ was being beaten and threatened and preparing to be killed. And in verse 22, Matthew 27, and in verse 20. Uh, In verse 22, it said here, Pilate said to them when they were trying to get him killed and let Barabbas go, Pilate said, What then shall I do with Jesus who called Christ? And all of them, I'm sorry for them, the Jews were deceived, of course. They didn't understand. But all of them yelled out, hundreds of them apparently, Crucify him, crucify him. Then the governor said, Why, what evil has he done? He was kind of a neutral guy, tried to be. He knew it was a religious argument, and he tried to get Christ off the hook. But he was trying to stop a riot. The Romans didn't like riots, so he just went along with the crowd because of that. And they cried out all the more, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands. He went through this public thing, like, I'm washing my hands of this, it's not my fault. Well, it was his fault. He could have stopped it right there. He had the power. But he would have had to call in a couple of Roman legions to start a little civil upset. He didn't want to do that. So he tried to pretend it was not his fault. It's interesting, brethren. There were two basic elements of human beings at that time from one point of view. One was the Jews and one was the Romans who were the leaders of the Gentile world. And God allowed the leaders of the Gentile world to allow Christ to be crucified. But he allowed the Jews, the religious leaders, to influence them to actually, you know, cause it to be done. But the Gentiles carried it out. So both elements of the human beings were part of it. The Romans had their part and the Jews had their part. So Pilate tried to excuse himself by washing his hands publicly. And the people all yelled out, his blood be upon us and on our children. Wow. That hurts. It hurts. But down through time, I can't say that everything is because of that, but you know how it's happened. Ever since then, the Jewish people, there's an unnatural, weird resentment of the Jewish people literally all over this earth. And now it's coming back again where they're being persecuted they're being held accountable. They're being blamed for things they didn't do. It's just weird. God's allowed that. His blood be on us and on our children. So then Pilate released Barabbas to them, this criminal. And when he had scourged Jesus, the official scourging was administered by a Roman lictor. We get our word licking from that. 
He gave the official lecky with a great big whip with a cat nine tails, so to speak, leather straps with little metal cleats that would tear the flesh right off. So Christ probably looked like raw hamburger. The nearest thing I've ever seen to it was in the movie Ben-Hur. Some of you have seen that movie. You remember near the end when when uh, the bad guy, whatever his name was, was thrown off the chariot and dragged around and showed, of course Hollywood had it made up that way, like his skin was torn right off his body. That's probably the way Christ looked, like his skin was torn right off his body. No wonder he stumbled out. One of his eyes may have been partly blinded because they hit him. They hit him with their fists. They hit him with clubs. He had blood. His eyes were swollen. One or both his eardrums may have been ruptured by these beatings they administered to him. The hide was torn off him. Loss of blood. He may have gone to shock. No wonder they had this Simon of Cyrene carry his cross most of the way. He probably could hardly stand up, let alone carry this great big post. So he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, this horrible beating, he delivered him to be crucified. And then in chapter, uh, here this same chapter, in verse 35, then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots. So they did the crucifixion. And they did it, we know, about nine in the morning. I'm not going to read every verse, but it indicates that what we would call nine in the morning and now about the sixth hour, verse 45, about high noon, when it would normally be the hottest, brightest part of the day, high noon, the sixth hour until the ninth hour, normally the hottest part of the day, until three o'clock in the afternoon, there was darkness over the land. Why? The creation began to convulse because the creator was being tormented. The one by whom God created the heavens and the earth was being tormented and was soon to die. The creation was convulsing. And about three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't just memorizing something. It was in his being. He knew that was to be said, but he felt it. For the first time, no doubt ever, he genuinely felt cut off from God. When our sins were laid on him as the sin bearer, suddenly he became the Passover lamb. He became the goat that had to be killed back in Leviticus chapter 16. He was cut off. He had to die. And for that few minutes or hours, whatever long God allowed that horrible feeling of totally being cut off, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried that out with deep feeling. And some of those who stood by said, he's calling for Elijah, and they tried to give him. They didn't understand. And then right after, uh, they said in verse 49, let's see if Elijah will come and save him. And if you read in the Clark's commentary and some of the other Bible books that I've read, you'll find out that right here, brethren, mark it down if you don't have it and check up on me, right after verse 49, they should put in there, which is in a number of places in the, in, uh, the ancient manuscripts, and another took a spear and pierced his side, and there came out water and blood. That wasn't the second piercing that took place later. That was why Christ was still alive. Christ did not die of a broken heart. 
Christ died because they jammed a spear in his side and he yelled as you would yell, and then suddenly yell, and then he died. He slumped forward. The blood gushed out, the blood of the Son of God, because the life is in the blood. And he who had given his life for us, he who had said, let there be light, and there was light, he who had created this heavens and the earth, who had created Saturn and Pluto and all the planets, the entire galaxy, every good, had he died. The Creator died, and the creation convulsed. And right at that time, the temple was torn, the veil of the temple, that they put up a great big heavy like a rug where it was hard, to, impossible to tear in two, so to speak, separating the outer court from the Holy of Holies. That veil was supernaturally torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth quaked. The creation shook because the creation was convulsing at the death of the Creator. The earth shook in a local earthquake and the rocks were split and graves were opened. There was a local resurrection and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, but apparently they were simply, the graves were opened, then they were brought out after Christ's resurrection. Coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went to the holy city and appeared to many. So it was an awesome time, a very awesome time. Back in Philippians, back in Philippians, to help us understand the meaning of all of this, turn back to Philippians, brethren, chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, brethren, and here we read in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. Let nothing, and all of you in this room, you brethren around the world who may hear this later, let's burn this into our brains. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. I've had selfish ambition hundreds of times, and most of you have too. We've got to get over selfish ambition. We should want to build the work. We should want to help others, but not just to get credit, not just to do this, but because we want to honor God. We want to honor Christ. We want to reflect Jesus Christ in everything we think and say and do. That ought to bear ambition. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. It's not wrong to look out for your own interests. You need to brush your own teeth. Your, bro your brother's not going to do that, or your wife normally doesn't want to brush your teeth unless you're terribly sick. You've got to brush your own teeth and wipe yourself off after you take a shower. You do those things. That's not wrong. But you look out for the interests of others as well. You ought to want them as a fellow human being to have a good life, to have a decent life. Hope they have a good marriage. Hope they can have a decent home. Hope they can have enough to eat. And hope and pray with all your heart that they can be finally in the first resurrection in the kingdom of God, if God is calling them at this time, have that attitude, that mind. Let this mind, that approach, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That was his mind, to give, to help. He and the Father made us in their image to be like they are throughout all eternity, to members of the very family of God, this total outflowing concern who being in the form of God 
He was made like God from the beginning. He was the Logos, the spokesman, and that total power and glory. He did not consider it Robert to be equal with God because he was. He was a member of the God family, but emptied himself. And as I've explained, the Greek word here is kenosis. If you want to write it down, check it up in an interlinear commentary. K-E-N-K-E-N-O-S-I-S, kenosis. It means emptying. Christ emptied himself of the power, the glory, the magnificence that he'd had before. He was willing, he had been God from eternity to give that up. You talk about love. You talk about humility. You talk about a spirit of service. Wow! He gave all of that up. He emptied himself, taking the form of a doulos, a bond slave, compared to what he'd been. He came down here where he was let men kick him, stomp on him, curse him, kill him, torture him. He became a bond slave, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And as I've explained, and I think most of you know, frankly, brethren, that was necessarily, we can't say it was the worst, but certainly one of the most awful, slow, ignominious ways to die. Some of them took four to six days hanging on that stake as their intestines would swell with food and finally the food would burst right through their intestinal wall. They died a slow, horrible death. Mercifully, God cut Christ's suffering short. Something prompted this young Roman. It may not have been a Roman, as I've explained. We don't know who it was. Some young man and their conscript army, something made him, maybe Christ groaned in pain, which is normal, and this young man thought, oh, shut up, wow, rammed that spear in his side, Christ screamed, the blood spurted out, his head flopped forward, he was gone. He didn't have to suffer day after day. He just hung on that cross for six solid hours, and then he died. So he was willing to do that, he became obedient to the death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, because Christ had that total attitude of service, of sacrifice, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, every title, every authority, every power, everything in the universe, everything, the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those things in heaven and earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord means boss. Why call you me Lord, Lord, and will not do what I say? Brethren, we've got to do what he said. We've got to honor him in the way we live our lives. As we come to the Passover, as we heard in the fine sermonette, we've got to realize how weak we are. We don't make it on our own. We do not make it. Christ has to forgive us and forgive us and forgive us. So we come through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we've got to have that attitude. We, we, we confess Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as we approach the Passover, I hope every one of us in this church can have a profound understanding that when we get down on our knees and lift up our hands, we're praying not to just some little Lord Jesus who someday appeared at Christmas time in a manger. We're appearing before the one who had been with God from eternity, 
were appearing before the one through whom God created the heavens and the earth and all the planets and everything that is, the one who made us male and female, the one who made human beings, the one who said, let there be light, and there was light, the one who was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, the one who thundered against the enemies of Israel, the one who delivered David again and again, the one who blessed his servants, and the one who finally emptied himself and died for us. We're praying to that being, that personality, who is our merciful and faithful high priest at God the Father's right hand, because he was tempted in all points like we are, the one who will be our judge because he understands us, and the one who will be our king forever in the kingdom and the very family of God into which we may be born if we go all out and cry out to God as Jesus did, setting us the example.